Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the low is 71 degrees, the high is 81, mostly cloudy with a shower and a thunderstorm. That's the forecast for Columbus, Indiana, Sunday, July 11th. A forecast tells you what to expect, what is coming. Point number one in your sermon outline, Roman number one, John is the forecast, you could say forerunner, of Jesus. When you look at John and when you hear John, you get an idea of the one who comes after him. He's the forecast or the forerunner of Jesus. Letter A, in preaching, both John and Jesus have the same message. Repent. Turn away from your sinful lifestyles and return to the Lord your God. Return to the divine services. Turn away from the pursuit of pleasure. As God keeps his promises to you in Christ, keep your promises to one another. As God daily forgives your sins on account of Christ, be forgiving of one another. John's preaching of repentance forecasts Christ's preaching. And John's passion, his death, forecasts the passion and death of our Savior himself. Letter B, John forecast Jesus in his passion. As John is bound and arrested, Jesus will be bound and arrested. As John is innocent, so is Jesus. As John is hated by Herodias, who finds a way to kill John at an opportune time, Jesus is hated by the chief priests who find a way to kill Jesus at an opportune time. And as John is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and who wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure, Jesus is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure. As John is buried by his followers, Jesus is as well. They may be secret followers, 
but their followers. John's suffering and death forecasts that of the Christ. And so, not only is John the forerunner of Jesus, Roman numeral two, John is the forecast, he is the forerunner of all who follow Jesus. And here we have in our gospel reading for today another sandwich. We've talked about this before. Mark's gospel is full of what we call sandwiches. He begins with one account. He interrupts that with another account. He finishes that other account. Then he comes back to the original story or the original account and wraps it up as well. Now, the opening verses of our gospel reading really belong to last week's gospel, the way the lectionary committee divided things up. But I think they did that because, you know, last week's, the real gospel lesson was about Christ's rejection in his hometown. That, I think they felt that wasn't long enough, so they had to throw in the sending of the 12 apostles with it. Otherwise, today's gospel reading would be too long for you to hear. I don't believe that at all, but I think that's what the lectionary committee had in mind, and so they busted up the sandwich. Well, we're putting the sandwich back together today the way it belongs, the way Mark intended. And so Mark sandwiches the brutal martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and the return of the twelve. And remember what we said before about sandwiches in Mark. The real meat, the real meaning of, of the whole kit and caboodle is in what's in the middle, okay? It's the martyrdom of John. That informs the opening verses and the closing verses, the bread, the bun of the sandwich. And Mark's purpose is to impress upon all of us the high cost of following Jesus. This is what followers of Christ can expect. So, number one, mission involves martyrdom. It does. Number two, discipleship involves death. Number three, but the word of the Lord cannot be silenced. It can't be silenced. So even while John is beheaded, the apostles are out doing the work that John had done, multiplied by 12. The word of the Lord cannot be silenced. You can silence the preacher, but not the word that he preaches. And so, my friends, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die at the hands of a hostile world. Now, Many reject this idea. It's not their idea of religion. Islam rejects this idea. Islam rejects the crucifixion of Christ on the assumption that God would never allow something that shameful to happen to one of his prophets. That ignores the fact that virtually all the Old Testament prophets died in similar ways. But not only does God allow Jesus to suffer and die in the most shameful way, God himself is in Jesus. God himself is suffering and dying in the person of Jesus. 
You see, at the cross, God takes his own medicine. The damnation with which God threatens all sinners, God takes that damnation into himself in the person of Christ. So it is not just a prophet who suffers and dies on the cross. It is God in the flesh who suffers and dies on the cross. Islam calls that shirk, the ultimate blasphemy. We call it the ultimate good news. Because he suffers and dies not for good people. Scripture is very clear, there's none of those. He dies for sinners, for all of us, even the very worst among us. But still we wonder how a loving God can stand by while John, his messenger, is beheaded. You know, Jesus said that among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And this is how God allows John to be treated. And if this is how John is treated, should we expect to be treated better? You know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Jesus said, if the world has hated me, and it has, it will hate you as well. Why does the world hate us? Well, because like John, we dare to speak truth to power. We speak truth about marriage being the lifelong union of one man and one woman. Truth about gender being fixed, not fluid. Truth about the sanctity of human life from the womb all the way to the tomb. And truth about Jesus being the one and only way to the Father, the only gracious way, which is the only way there is to the Father. Now, saying these things publicly can get you canceled on social media. It can get you fired from your job and expelled from college campuses. There's many examples of this. Um, Mary Eberstadt wrote a book several years ago about life in Western culture, America, Europe, called It's Dangerous to Believe. Many examples of how people lose their jobs, they miss out on promotions, and so on and so forth, because they take a public stand on scriptural truth. And here, I just got this in the mail from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and this has been in the news, uh, well, Christian news anyway. Uh, the bishop-elect of Finland, uh, the cons- not the state church in Finland, but the Bible-believing uh, partner church of ours uh, faces jail time for biblical marriage views. Just, I mean, the examples are legion of this. And as bad as that is, it's nothing compared to what Christians in other parts of the world face on a daily basis. Kidnapping, sexual assault, the loss of their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Why? only because of their faith in Jesus. That's why. My friends, the call to follow Christ is a call to lose everything this world has to offer and to die at the hands of a hostile world. 
St. Paul wrote these words that all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> that is a promise. To speak truth to a world that hates truth will bring the world's wrath down upon oneself. John the Baptist is a forecast of what would happen to Jesus and to us. Letter B. So, to whom would such a message appeal? <laughs> you know, it would seem like there'd be a pretty slim audience uh, for this kind of truth talk. Who would be eager to hear such things? Who might benefit from hearing about John the Baptist and others who suffer and die from, for their faith? Who might hear that and want to hear it? Well, maybe those Christians who are already suffering and dying for their faith. They might identify with and find comfort in what happened to John. We might scratch our heads over this kind of news, but they might find it of great use and great comfort. Early Christian tradition says that Mark wrote his gospel to Christians in Rome who were being thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum and who were being burned to death at night to illuminate the Emperor Nero's garden. Mark's gospel is a message of comfort for those Christians under duress. It is a message of consolation for those caught in the conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness. When suffering Christians in Rome read this gospel, they must have thought, if this is what happens to a good man like John, why should I be ashamed if it happens to me? If God himself endures suffering and death in the person of Jesus, then should not I feel honored to share the same fate as he, the same experience as he? Mark writes his gospel to strengthen those who are suffering for Christ and to remind them that they are in good company, the best company of all. If this is how the world treats John and Jesus, the greatest among us, who are we to expect that we would be treated any differently? Number one, though, our default goal what I call our default goal. And, and, and this is our, our default goal. If we don't know the Lord, or maybe if we strayed from the Lord, this becomes our ambition in life. We want a life that is predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable. That is humanity's highest hope and expectation. And sadly, it is also what some Christians expect. I don't know how they come to that conclusion. Well, I do. You have to be ignorant of the word. That's how. But here's my question. If your goal in life is to be a life, to live a life that's predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable, do you think you'd be willing to risk your reputation by publicly identifying with Jesus? If your goal in life is comfort and pleasure, would you risk your career by publicly confessing the truth of God's word? 
concerning marriage or gender or sexuality in general. If your goal is comfort and pleasure, you will be at best a closet Christian. And I fear we have too many closet Christians. And sometimes I could see one staring at me from the mirror. Number two, God's goal, and this should be our goal, the goal of everyone here, the goal of everyone who names Christ, and that's the salvation of humanity. The salvation of humanity. My friends, the salvation of souls cannot be accomplished by Christians or by ministers who remain in the closet. That salvation comes through a message, and the message is the message of the cross. God loves the world so much that he gave his son, and he loves the world too much to leave it as it is. He loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He calls us to speak the truth in love to a world that's in need of both. This is the cross we bear, and the crosses we bear remind the world of the cross of our Savior, which is the only cross that saves. And let her see. Either we are of all people the most to be pitied, or we are forerunners, or we are forecasts of the world to come. The unbelieving world sees us to be pitied as people to be pitied because we refrain from gratifying the desires of the flesh. Instead, we look forward to that world that is coming, the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness dwells. The world pities us because we forego the things today, the pleasures of the present, for the sake of a promise to be fulfilled in the future. But do you know what Jesus says about those who live for pleasure? He says, they have their reward. They already have all that they will ever have. Now, what you see is all they'll ever have. And even that will soon be taken. Life for them will never be better than it is now. And for them, it's all downhill from here. How sad. They are the ones we must pity. They are the ones we are here to call to repentance. But to those who are not ashamed of Christ in his words... To those who dare to speak the truth in love to a family member or to a friend who opposes it, our Lord says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Your family, your friends may cancel you. They may shun you. Expect it. But God's love for them and your love for them will prevail. For God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, including those closest to you who may seem furthest from the Lord today. 
So stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in God's unyielding love for the sake of those around you. And you will become for them a sign, a forerunner, a forecast of the world that is to come. And may that world come quickly for them and for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the low is 71 degrees. The high is 81. Mostly cloudy with a shower and a thunderstorm. That's the forecast for Columbus, Indiana, Sunday, July 11th. A forecast tells you what to expect, what is coming. Point number one in your sermon outline, Roman number one, John is the forecast, you could say forerunner, of Jesus. When you look at John and when you hear John, you get an idea of the one who comes after him. He's the forecast or the forerunner of Jesus. Letter A, in preaching, both John and Jesus have the same message. Repent. Turn away from your sinful lifestyles and return to the Lord your God. Return to the divine services. Turn away from the pursuit of pleasure. As God keeps his promises to you in Christ, keep your promises to one another. As God daily forgives your sins on account of Christ, be forgiving of one another. John's preaching of repentance forecasts Christ's preaching. And John's passion, his death, forecast the passion and death of our Savior himself. Letter B, John forecast Jesus in his passion. As John is bound and arrested, Jesus will be bound and arrested. As John is innocent, so is Jesus. As John is hated by Herodias, who finds a way to kill John at an opportune time, Jesus is hated by the chief priests who find a way to kill Jesus 
at an opportune time. And as John is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and who wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure, Jesus is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure. As John is buried by his followers, Jesus is as well. They may be secret followers, but they're followers. John's suffering and death forecasts that of the Christ. And so, not only is John the forerunner of Jesus, Roman numeral two, John is the forecast, he is the forerunner of all who follow Jesus. And here we have in our gospel reading for today another sandwich. We've talked about this before. Mark's gospel is full of what we call sandwiches. He begins with one account. He interrupts that with another account. He finishes that other account. Then he comes back to the original story or the original account and wraps it up as well. Now, the opening verses of our gospel reading really belong to last week's gospel, the way the lectionary committee divided things up. But I think they did that because, you know, last week's, the real gospel lesson was about Christ's rejection in his hometown. That, I think they felt that wasn't long enough, so they had to throw in the sending of the 12 apostles with it. Otherwise, today's gospel reading would be too long for you to hear. I don't believe that at all, but I think that's what the lectionary committee had in mind, and so they busted up the sandwich. Well, we're putting the sandwich back together today the way it belongs, the way Mark intended. And so Mark sandwiches the brutal martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and the return of the twelve. And remember what we said before about sandwiches in Mark. The real meat, the real meaning of, of the whole kit and caboodle is in what's in the middle, okay? It's the martyrdom of John. That informs the opening verses and the closing verses, the bread, the bun of the sandwich. And Mark's purpose is to impress upon all of us the high cost of following Jesus. This is what followers of Christ can expect. So, number one, mission involves martyrdom. It does. Number two, discipleship involves death. Number three, but the word of the Lord cannot be silenced. It can't be silenced. So even while John is beheaded, the apostles are out doing the work that John had done, multiplied by 12. The word of the Lord cannot be silenced. You can silence the preacher, but not the word that he preaches. And so, my friends, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die at the hands of a hostile world. Now, 
Many reject this idea. It's not their idea of religion. Islam rejects this idea. Islam rejects the crucifixion of Christ on the assumption that God would never allow something that shameful to happen to one of his prophets. That ignores the fact that virtually all the Old Testament prophets died in similar ways. But not only does God allow Jesus to suffer and die in the most shameful way, God himself is in Jesus. God himself is suffering and dying in the person of Jesus. You see, at the cross, God takes his own medicine. The damnation with which God threatens all sinners, God takes that damnation into himself in the person of Christ. So it is not just a prophet who suffers and dies on the cross. It is God in the flesh who suffers and dies on the cross. Islam calls that shirk, the ultimate blasphemy. We call it the ultimate good news. Because he suffers and dies not for good people. Scripture is very clear. There's none of those. He dies for sinners, for all of us, even the very worst among us. But still we wonder how a loving God can stand by while John, his messenger, is beheaded. You know, Jesus said that among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And this is how God allows John to be treated. And if this is how John is treated, should we expect to be treated better? You know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Jesus said, if the world has hated me, and it has, it will hate you as well. Why does the world hate us? Well, because like John, we dare to speak truth to power. We speak truth about marriage being the lifelong union of one man and one woman. Truth about gender being fixed, not fluid. Truth about the sanctity of human life from the womb all the way to the tomb. And truth about Jesus being the one and only way to the Father, the only gracious way, which is the only way there is to the Father. Now, saying these things publicly can get you canceled on social media. It can get you fired from your job and expelled from college campuses. There's many examples of this. Um, Mary Eberstadt wrote a book several years ago about life in Western culture, America, Europe, called It's Dangerous to Believe. <clears throat> many examples of how people lose their jobs, they miss out on promotions, and so on and so forth, because they take a public stand on scriptural truth. And here, I just got this in the mail from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and this has been in the news, uh, well, Christian news anyway. Uh, the bishop-elect of Finland, uh, the not the state church in Finland, but the Bible-believing uh, partner church of ours uh, faces jail time for biblical marriage views. Just, I mean, the examples 
are legion of this. And as bad as that is, it's nothing compared to what Christians in other parts of the world face on a daily basis. Kidnapping, sexual assault, the loss of their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Why? Only because of their faith in Jesus. That's why. My friends, the call to follow Christ is a call to lose everything this world has to offer and to die at the hands of a hostile world. St. Paul wrote these words that all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a promise. To speak truth to a world that hates truth will bring the world's wrath down upon oneself. John the Baptist is a forecast of what would happen to Jesus and to us. Let her be. So, to whom would such a message appeal? <laughs> you know, it would seem like there'd be a pretty slim audience uh, for this kind of truth talk. Who would be eager to hear such things? Who might benefit from hearing about John the Baptist and others who suffer and die from, for their faith? Who might hear that and want to hear it? Well, maybe those Christians who are already suffering and dying for their faith. They might identify with and find comfort in what happened to John. We might scratch our heads over this kind of news, but they might find it of great use and great comfort. Early Christian tradition says that Mark wrote his gospel to Christians in Rome who were being thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum and who were being burned to death at night to illuminate the Emperor Nero's garden. Mark's gospel is a message of comfort for those Christians under duress. It is a message of consolation for those caught in the conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness. When suffering Christians in Rome read this gospel, they must have thought, if this is what happens to a good man like John, why should I be ashamed if it happens to me? If God himself endures suffering and death in the person of Jesus, then should not I feel honored to share the same fate as he, the same experience as he. Mark writes his gospel to strengthen those who are suffering for Christ and to remind them that they are in good company, the best company of all. If this is how the world treats John and Jesus, the greatest among us, who are we to expect that we would be treated any differently? Number one, though, our default goal, what I call our default goal, and, and, and this is our, our default goal, if we don't know the Lord or maybe if we strayed from the Lord, this becomes our ambition in life. We want a life that is predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable. That is humanity's highest hope and expectation. And sadly, it is also what some Christians 
expect. I don't know how they come to that conclusion. Well, I do. You have to be ignorant of the word. That's how. But here's my question. If your goal in life is to be a life, to live a life that's predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable, do you think you'd be willing to risk your reputation by publicly identifying with Jesus? If your goal in life is comfort and pleasure, would you risk your career by publicly confessing the truth of God's word concerning marriage or gender or sexuality in general? If your goal is comfort and pleasure, you will be at best a closet Christian. And I fear we have too many closet Christians. And sometimes I could see one staring at me from the mirror. Number two, God's goal, and this should be our goal, the goal of everyone here, the goal of everyone who names Christ, and that's the salvation of humanity. The salvation of humanity. My friends, the salvation of souls cannot be accomplished by Christians or by ministers who remain in the closet. That salvation comes through a message, and the message is the message of the cross. God loves the world so much that he gave his son, and he loves the world too much to leave it as it is. He loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He calls us to speak the truth in love to a world that's in need of both. This is the cross we bear, and the crosses we bear remind the world of the cross of our Savior, which is the only cross that saves. And let her see. Either we are of all people the most to be pitied, or we are forerunners, or we are forecasts of the world to come. The unbelieving world sees us to be pitied as people to be pitied because we refrain from gratifying the desires of the flesh. Instead, we look forward to that world that is coming, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. The world pities us because we forego the things today, the pleasures of the present, for the sake of a promise to be fulfilled in the future. But do you know what Jesus says about those who live for pleasure? He says, they have their reward. They already have all that they will ever have. Now, what you see is all they'll ever have. And even that will soon be taken. Life for them will never be better than it is now. And for them, it's all downhill from here. How sad. They are the ones we must pity. They are the ones we are here to call to repentance. But to those who are not ashamed of Christ in his words... 
to those who dare to speak the truth in love to a family member or to a friend who opposes it, our Lord says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Your family, your friends may cancel you. They may shun you. Expect it. But God's love for them and your love for them will prevail. For God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, including those closest to you who may seem furthest from the Lord today. So stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in God's unyielding love for the sake of those around you. And you will become for them a sign, a forerunner, a forecast of the world that is to come. And may that world come quickly for them and for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the low is 71 degrees, the high is 81, mostly cloudy with a shower and a thunderstorm. That's the forecast for Columbus, Indiana, Sunday, July 11th. A forecast tells you what to expect, what is coming. Point number one in your sermon outline, Roman number one, John is the forecast, you could say forerunner, of Jesus. When you look at John and when you hear John, you get an idea of the one who comes after him. He's the forecast or the forerunner of Jesus. Letter A, in preaching, both John and Jesus have the same message. Repent. Turn away from your sinful lifestyles and return to the Lord your God. Return to the divine services. Turn away from the pursuit of pleasure. As God keeps his promises to you in Christ, keep your promises to one another. As God daily forgives your sins on account of Christ, be forgiving of one another. John's preaching of repentance forecasts Christ's preaching. And John's passion 
his death forecasts the passion and death of our Savior himself. Letter B, John forecast Jesus in his passion. As John is bound and arrested, Jesus will be bound and arrested. As John is innocent, so is Jesus. As John is hated by Herodias, who finds a way to kill John at an opportune time, Jesus is hated by the chief priests, who find a way to kill Jesus at an opportune time. And as John is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and who wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure, Jesus is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure. As John is buried by his followers, Jesus is as well. They may be secret followers, but they're followers. John's suffering and death forecasts that of the Christ. And so, not only is John the forerunner of Jesus, Roman numeral two, John is the forecast, he is the forerunner of all who follow Jesus. And here we have in our gospel reading for today another sandwich. We've talked about this before. Mark's gospel is full of what we call sandwiches. He begins with one account. He interrupts that with another account. He finishes that other account. Then he comes back to the original story or the original account and wraps it up as well. Now, the opening verses of our gospel reading really belong to last week's gospel, the way the lectionary committee divided things up. But I think they did that because, you know, last week's, the real gospel lesson was about Christ's rejection in his hometown. That, I think they felt that wasn't long enough, so they had to throw in the sending of the 12 apostles with it. Otherwise, today's gospel reading would be too long for you to hear. I don't believe that at all, but I think that's what the lectionary committee had in mind, and so they busted up the sandwich. Well, we're putting the sandwich back together today the way it belongs, the way Mark intended. And so Mark sandwiches the brutal martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and the return of the twelve. And remember what we said before about sandwiches in Mark. The real meat, the real meaning of, of the whole kit and caboodle is in what's in the middle, okay? It's the martyrdom of John. That informs the opening verses and the closing verses, the bread, the bun of the sandwich. And Mark's purpose is to impress upon all of us the high cost of following Jesus. This is what followers of Christ can expect. So, number one, mission involves martyrdom. It does. Number two, discipleship involves death. Number three, but the word of the Lord cannot be silenced. 
They can't be silenced. So even while John is beheaded, the apostles are out doing the work that John had done, multiplied by 12. The word of the Lord cannot be silenced. You can silence the preacher, but not the word that he preaches. And so, my friends, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die at the hands of a hostile world. Now, many reject this idea. It's not their idea of religion. Islam rejects this idea. Islam rejects the crucifixion of Christ on the assumption that God would never allow something that shameful to happen to one of his prophets. That ignores the fact that virtually all the Old Testament prophets died in similar ways. But not only does God allow Jesus to suffer and die in the most shameful way, God himself is in Jesus. God himself is suffering and dying in the person of Jesus. You see, at the cross, God takes his own medicine. The damnation with which God threatens all sinners, God takes that damnation into himself in the person of Christ. So it is not just a prophet who suffers and dies on the cross. It is God in the flesh who suffers and dies on the cross. Islam calls that shirk, the ultimate blasphemy. We call it the ultimate good news. Because he suffers and dies not for good people. Scripture is very clear. There's none of those. He dies for sinners, for all of us, even the very worst among us. But still we wonder how a loving God can stand by while John, his messenger, is beheaded. You know, Jesus said that among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And this is how God allows John to be treated. And if this is how John is treated, should we expect to be treated better? You know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Jesus said, if the world has hated me, and it has, it will hate you as well. Why does the world hate us? Well, because, like John, we dare to speak truth to power. We speak truth about marriage being the lifelong union of one man and one woman. Truth about gender being fixed, not fluid. Truth about the sanctity of human life from the womb all the way to the tomb and truth about Jesus being the one and only way to the Father, the only gracious way, which is the only way there is to the Father. Now, saying these things publicly can get you canceled on social media. It can get you fired from your job and expelled from college campuses. There's many examples of this. Um, Mary Eberstadt wrote a book several years ago about life 
in Western culture, America, Europe, called it's dangerous to believe. <clears throat> Many examples of how people lose their jobs, they miss out on promotions, and so on and so forth, because they take a public stand on scriptural truth. And here, I just got this in the mail from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and this has been in the news, uh, well, Christian news anyway, uh, the bishop-elect of Finland, uh, the not the state church in Finland, but the Bible-believing uh, partner church of ours uh, faces jail time for biblical marriage views. Just, I mean, the examples are legion of this. And as bad as that is, it's nothing compared to what Christians in other parts of the world face on a daily basis. Kidnapping, sexual assault, the loss of their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Why? Only because of their faith in Jesus. That's why. My friends, the call to follow Christ is a call to lose everything this world has to offer and to die at the hands of a hostile world. St. Paul wrote these words that all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> that is a promise. To speak truth to a world that hates truth will bring the world's wrath down upon oneself. John the Baptist is a forecast of what would happen to Jesus and to us. Letter B. So, to whom would such a message appeal? <laughs> you know, it would seem like there'd be a pretty slim audience uh, for this kind of truth talk. Who would be eager to hear such things? Who might benefit from hearing about John the Baptist and others who suffer and die from, for their faith? Who might hear that and want to hear it? Well, maybe those Christians who are already suffering and dying for their faith. They might identify with and find comfort in what happened to John. We might scratch our heads over this kind of news, but they might find it of great use and great comfort. Early Christian tradition says that Mark wrote his gospel to Christians in Rome who were being thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum and who were being burned to death at night to illuminate the Emperor Nero's garden. Mark's gospel is a message of comfort for those Christians under duress. It is a message of consolation for those caught in the conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness. When suffering Christians in Rome read this gospel, they must have thought, if this is what happens to a good man like John, why should I be ashamed if it happens to me? If God himself endures suffering and death in the person of Jesus, then should not I feel honored to share the same fate as he, the same experience as he. Mark writes his gospel to strengthen those who are suffering for Christ and to remind them that they are in good company, the best company of all. 
If this is how the world treats John and Jesus, the greatest among us, who are we to expect that we would be treated any differently? Number one, though, our default goal, what I call our default goal, and, and, and this is our, our default goal, if we don't know the Lord or maybe if we strayed from the Lord, this becomes our ambition in life. We want a life that is predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable. That is humanity's highest hope and expectation. And sadly, it is also what some Christians expect. I don't know how they come to that conclusion. Well, I do. You have to be ignorant of the word. That's how. But here's my question. If your goal in life is to be a life, to live a life that's predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable, do you think you'd be willing to risk your reputation by publicly identifying with Jesus? If your goal in life is comfort and pleasure, would you risk your career by publicly confessing the truth of God's word concerning marriage or gender or sexuality in general? If your goal is comfort and pleasure, you will be at best a closet Christian. And I fear we have too many closet Christians. And Sometimes I could see one staring at me from the mirror. Number two, God's goal, and this should be our goal, the goal of everyone here, the goal of everyone who names Christ, and that's the salvation of humanity. The salvation of humanity. My friends, the salvation of souls cannot be accomplished by Christians or by ministers who remain in the closet. That salvation comes through a message, and the message is the message of the cross. God loves the world so much that he gave his son, and he loves the world too much to leave it as it is. He loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He calls us to speak the truth in love to a world that's in need of both. This is the cross we bear. And the crosses we bear remind the world of the cross of our Savior, which is the only cross that saves. And let her see. Either we are of all people the most to be pitied, or we are forerunners, or we are forecasts of the world to come. The unbelieving world sees us to be pitied as people to be pitied because we refrain from gratifying the desires of the flesh. Instead, we look forward to that world that is coming, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. The world pities us because we forego the things today, the pleasures of the present, for the sake of a promise to be fulfilled in the future. But do you know what Jesus says about those who live for pleasure? He says, they have their reward. They already have all that they will ever have 
now. What you see is all they'll ever have. And even that will soon be taken. Life for them will never be better than it is now. And for them, it's all downhill from here. How sad. They are the ones we must pity. They are the ones we are here to call to repentance. But to those who are not ashamed of Christ in his words, to those who dare to speak the truth in love to a family member or to a friend who opposes it, our Lord says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Your family, your friends may cancel you. They may shun you. Expect it. But God's love for them and your love for them will prevail. For God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, including those closest to you who may seem furthest from the Lord today. So stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in God's unyielding love for the sake of those around you. And you will become for them a sign, a forerunner, a forecast of the world that is to come. And may that world come quickly for them and for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the low is 71 degrees. The high is 81. Mostly cloudy with a shower and a thunderstorm. That's the forecast for Columbus, Indiana, Sunday, July 11th. A forecast tells you what to expect, what is coming. Point number one in your sermon outline, Roman number one, John is the forecast, you could say forerunner, of Jesus. When you look at John, and when you hear John, you get an idea of the one who comes after him. He's the forecast or the forerunner of Jesus. Letter A, in preaching, both John and Jesus have the same message. Repent. Turn away from your sinful 
lifestyles and return to the Lord your God. Return to the divine services. Turn away from the pursuit of pleasure. As God keeps his promises to you in Christ, keep your promises to one another. As God daily forgives your sins on account of Christ, be forgiving of one another. John's preaching of repentance forecasts Christ's preaching. And John's passion, his death, forecasts the passion and death of our Savior himself. Letter B, John forecast Jesus in his passion. As John is bound and arrested, Jesus will be bound and arrested. As John is innocent, so is Jesus. As John is hated by Herodias, who finds a way to kill John at an opportune time, Jesus is hated by the chief priests, who find a way to kill Jesus at an opportune time. And as John is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and who wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure, Jesus is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure. As John is buried by his followers, Jesus is as well. They may be secret followers, but they're followers. John's suffering and death forecasts that of the Christ. And so, not only is John the forerunner of Jesus, Roman numeral two, John is the forecast he is the forerunner of all who follow Jesus. And here we have in our gospel reading for today another sandwich. We've talked about this before. Mark's gospel is full of what we call sandwiches. He begins with one account. He interrupts that with another account. He finishes that other account. Then he comes back to the original story or the original account and wraps it up as well. Now, the opening verses of our gospel reading really belong to last week's gospel, the way the lectionary committee divided things up. But I think they did that because, you know, last week's, the real gospel lesson was about Christ's rejection in his hometown. That, I think they felt that wasn't long enough, so they had to throw in the sending of the 12 apostles with it. Otherwise, today's gospel reading would be too long for you to hear. I don't believe that at all, but I think that's what the lectionary committee had in mind, and so they busted up the sandwich. Well, we're putting the sandwich back together today the way it belongs, the way Mark intended. And so Mark sandwiches the brutal martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and the return of the twelve. And remember what we said before about sandwiches in Mark. The real meat, the real meaning of, of the whole kit and caboodle is in what's in the middle, okay? It's the martyrdom of John. That informs the opening verses and the closing verses 
the bread, the bun of the sandwich. And Mark's purpose is to impress upon all of us the high cost of following Jesus. This is what followers of Christ can expect. So, number one, mission involves martyrdom. It does. Number two, discipleship involves death. Number three, but the word of the Lord cannot be silenced. It can't be silenced. So even while John is beheaded, the apostles are out doing the work that John had done, multiplied by 12. The word of the Lord cannot be silenced. You can silence the preacher, but not the word that he preaches. And so, my friends, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die at the hands of a hostile world. Now, many reject this idea. It's not their idea of religion. Islam rejects this idea. Islam rejects the crucifixion of Christ on the assumption that God would never allow something that shameful to happen to one of his prophets. That ignores the fact that virtually all the Old Testament prophets died in similar ways. But not only does God allow Jesus to suffer and die in the most shameful way, God himself is in Jesus. God himself is suffering and dying in the person of Jesus. You see, at the cross, God takes his own medicine. The damnation with which God threatens all sinners, God takes that damnation into himself in the person of Christ. So it is not just a prophet who suffers and dies on the cross. It is God in the flesh who suffers and dies on the cross. Islam calls that shirk, the ultimate blasphemy. We call it the ultimate good news. Because he suffers and dies not for good people. Scripture is very clear. There's none of those. He dies for sinners, for all of us, even the very worst among us. But still we wonder how a loving God can stand by while John, his messenger, is beheaded. You know, Jesus said that among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And this is how God allows John to be treated. And if this is how John is treated, should we expect to be treated better? You know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Jesus said, if the world has hated me, and it has, it will hate you as well. Why does the world hate us? Well, because, like John, we dare to speak truth to power. We speak truth about marriage being the lifelong union of one man and one woman. Truth about gender being fixed, not fluid. Truth about the sanctity of human life from the womb all the way to the tomb. 
and truth about Jesus being the one and only way to the Father, the only gracious way, which is the only way there is to the Father. Now, saying these things publicly can get you canceled on social media, it can get you fired from your job, and expelled from college campuses. There's many examples of this. Um, Mary Eberstadt wrote a book several years ago about life in Western culture, America, Europe, called It's Dangerous to Believe. <clears throat> many examples of how people lose their jobs, they miss out on promotions, and so on and so forth, because they take a public stand on scriptural truth. And here, I just got this in the mail from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and this has been in the news, uh, well, Christian news anyway. Uh, the bishop-elect of Finland, uh, the not the state church in Finland, but the Bible-believing uh, partner church of ours uh, faces jail time for biblical marriage views. Just, I mean, the examples are legion of this. And as bad as that is, it's nothing compared to what Christians in other parts of the world face on a daily basis. Kidnapping, sexual assault, the loss of their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Why? Only because of their faith in Jesus. That's why. My friends, the call to follow Christ is a call to lose everything this world has to offer and to die at the hands of a hostile world. St. Paul wrote these words, that all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> that is a promise. To speak truth to a world that hates truth will bring the world's wrath down upon oneself. John the Baptist is a forecast of what would happen to Jesus and to us. Letter B. So, to whom would such a message appeal? <laughs> you know, it would seem like there'd be a pretty slim audience uh, for this kind of truth talk. Who would be eager to hear such things? Who might benefit from hearing about John the Baptist and others who suffer and die from, for their faith? Who might hear that and want to hear it? Well, maybe those Christians who are already suffering and dying for their faith. They might identify with and find comfort in what happened to John. We might scratch our heads over this kind of news, but they might find it of great use and great comfort. Early Christian tradition says that Mark wrote his gospel to Christians in Rome who were being thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum and who were being burned to death at night to illuminate the Emperor Nero's garden. Mark's gospel is a message of comfort for those Christians under duress. It is a message of consolation for those caught in the conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness. When suffering Christians in Rome read this gospel, they must have thought, 
if this is what happens to a good man like John, why should I be ashamed if it happens to me? If God himself endures suffering and death in the person of Jesus, then should not I feel honored to share the same fate as he, the same experience as he? Mark writes his gospel to strengthen those who are suffering for Christ and to remind them that they are in good company, the best company of all. If this is how the world treats John and Jesus, the greatest among us, who are we to expect that we would be treated any differently? Number one, though, our default goal what I call our default goal. And, and, and this is our, our default goal. If we don't know the Lord, or maybe if we strayed from the Lord, this becomes our ambition in life. We want a life that is predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable. That is humanity's highest hope and expectation. And sadly, it is also what some Christians expect. I don't know how they come to that conclusion. Well, I do. You have to be ignorant of the word. That's how. But here's my question. If your goal in life is to be a life, to live a life that's predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable, do you think you'd be willing to risk your reputation by publicly identifying with Jesus? If your goal in life is comfort and pleasure, would you risk your career by publicly confessing the truth of God's word concerning marriage or gender or sexuality in general? If your goal is comfort and pleasure, you will be at best a closet Christian. And I fear we have too many closet Christians. And Sometimes I could see one staring at me from the mirror. Number two, God's goal, and this should be our goal, the goal of everyone here, the goal of everyone who names Christ, and that's the salvation of humanity. The salvation of humanity. My friends, the salvation of souls cannot be accomplished by Christians or by ministers who remain in the closet. That salvation comes through a message, and the message is the message of the cross. God loves the world so much that he gave his son, and he loves the world too much to leave it as it is. He loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He calls us to speak the truth in love to a world that's in need of both. This is the cross we bear. And the crosses we bear remind the world of the cross of our Savior, which is the only cross that saves. And let her see. Either we are of all people the most to be pitied, or we are forerunners, or we are forecasts of the world to come. The unbelieving world sees us to be pitied as people to be pitied because we refrain from gratifying the desires of the flesh 
Instead, we look forward to that world that is coming, the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness dwells. The world pities us because we forego the things today, the pleasures of the present, for the sake of a promise to be fulfilled in the future. But do you know what Jesus says about those who live for pleasure? He says, they have their reward. They already have all that they will ever have. Now, what you see is all they'll ever have. And even that will soon be taken. Life for them will never be better than it is now. And for them, it's all downhill from here. How sad. They are the ones we must pity. They are the ones we are here to call to repentance. But to those who are not ashamed of Christ in his words... To those who dare to speak the truth in love to a family member or to a friend who opposes it, our Lord says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Your family, your friends may cancel you. They may shun you. Expect it. But God's love for them and your love for them will prevail. For God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, including those closest to you who may seem furthest from the Lord today. So stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in God's unyielding love for the sake of those around you. And you will become for them a sign, a forerunner, a forecast of the world that is to come. And may that world come quickly for them and for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word which goes forth from your mouth will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the low is 71 degrees, the high is 81, mostly cloudy with a shower and a thunderstorm. That's the forecast for Columbus, Indiana, Sunday, July 11th. A forecast tells you what to expect, what is coming. Point number one in your sermon outline, Roman number one, John is the forecast, you could say forerunner, 
of Jesus. When you look at John, and when you hear John, you get an idea of the one who comes after him. He's the forecast or the forerunner of Jesus. Letter A, in preaching, both John and Jesus have the same message. Repent, turn away from your sinful lifestyles and return to the Lord your God. Return to the divine services. Turn away from the pursuit of pleasure. As God keeps his promises to you in Christ, keep your promises to one another. As God daily forgives your sins on account of Christ, be forgiving of one another. John's preaching of repentance forecasts Christ's preaching. And John's passion, his death, forecasts the passion and death of our Savior himself. Letter B, John forecasts Jesus in his passion. As John is bound and arrested, Jesus will be bound and arrested. As John is innocent, so is Jesus. As John is hated by Herodias, who finds a way to kill John at an opportune time, Jesus is hated by the chief priests, who find a way to kill Jesus at an opportune time. And as John is killed by a weak-willed tyrant, who fears him and who wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure, Jesus is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure. As John is buried by his followers, Jesus is as well. They may be secret followers, but they're followers. John's suffering and death forecasts that of the Christ. And so, not only is John the forerunner of Jesus, Roman numeral two, John is the forecast, he is the forerunner of all who follow Jesus. And here we have, in our gospel reading for today, another sandwich. We've talked about this before. Mark's gospel is full of what we call sandwiches. He begins with one account. He interrupts that with another account. He finishes that other account. Then he comes back to the original story or the original account and wraps it up as well. Now, the opening verses of our gospel reading really belong to last week's gospel, the way the lectionary committee divided things up. But I think they did that because, you know, last week's, the real gospel lesson was about Christ's rejection in his hometown. That, I think they felt that wasn't long enough, so they had to throw in the sending of the 12 apostles with it. Otherwise, today's gospel reading would be too long for you to hear. 
I don't believe that at all, but I think that's what the lectionary committee had in mind. And so they busted up the sandwich. Well, we're putting the sandwich back together today the way it belongs, the way Mark intended. And so Mark sandwiches the brutal martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and the return of the twelve. And remember what we said before about sandwiches in Mark. The real meat, the real meaning of, of the whole kit and caboodle is in what's in the middle, okay? It's the martyrdom of John. That informs the opening verses and the closing verses, the bread, the bun of the sandwich. And Mark's purpose is to impress upon all of us the high cost of following Jesus. This is what followers of Christ can expect. So, number one, mission involves martyrdom. It does. Number two, discipleship involves death. Number three, but the word of the Lord cannot be silenced. It can't be silenced. So even while John is beheaded, the apostles are out doing the work that John had done, multiplied by 12. The word of the Lord cannot be silenced. You can silence the preacher, but not the word that he preaches. And so, my friends, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die at the hands of a hostile world. Now, many reject this idea. It's not their idea of religion. Islam rejects this idea. Islam rejects the crucifixion of Christ on the assumption that God would never allow something that shameful to happen to one of his prophets. That ignores the fact that virtually all the Old Testament prophets died in similar ways. But not only does God allow Jesus to suffer and die in the most shameful way, God himself is in Jesus. God himself is suffering and dying in the person of Jesus. You see, at the cross, God takes his own medicine. The damnation with which God threatens all sinners, God takes that damnation into himself in the person of Christ. So it is not just a prophet who suffers and dies on the cross. It is God in the flesh who suffers and dies on the cross. Islam calls that shirk, the ultimate blasphemy. We call it the ultimate good news. Because he suffers and dies not for good people. Scripture is very clear. There's none of those. He dies for sinners, for all of us, even the very worst among us. But still we wonder how a loving God can stand by while John, his messenger, is beheaded. You know, Jesus said that among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And this is how God allows John to be treated. And if this is how John is treated, should we expect to be treated better? 
You know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Jesus said, if the world has hated me, and it has, it will hate you as well. Why does the world hate us? Well, because like John, we dare to speak truth to power. We speak truth about marriage being the lifelong union of one man and one woman. Truth about gender being fixed, not fluid. Truth about the sanctity of human life from the womb all the way to the tomb. And truth about Jesus being the one and only way to the Father, the only gracious way, which is the only way there is to the Father. Now, saying these things publicly can get you canceled on social media. It can get you fired from your job and expelled from college campuses. There's many examples of this. Um, Mary Eberstadt wrote a book several years ago about life in Western culture, America, Europe, called It's Dangerous to Believe. Many examples of how people lose their jobs, they miss out on promotions, and so on and so forth, because they take a public stand on scriptural truth. And here, I just got this in the mail from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and this has been in the news, uh, well, Christian news anyway. Uh, the bishop-elect of Finland, uh, the concern, not the state church in Finland, but the Bible-believing uh, partner church of ours uh, faces jail time for biblical marriage views. Just, I mean, the examples are legion of this. And as bad as that is, it's nothing compared to what Christians in other parts of the world face on a daily basis. Kidnapping, sexual assault, the loss of their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Why? Only because of their faith in Jesus. That's why. My friends, the call to follow Christ is a call to lose everything this world has to offer and to die at the hands of a hostile world. St. Paul wrote these words, that all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> that is a promise. To speak truth to a world that hates truth will bring the world's wrath down upon oneself. John the Baptist is a forecast of what would happen to Jesus and to us. Letter B. So, to whom would such a message appeal? <laughs> you know, it would seem like there'd be a pretty slim audience uh, for this kind of truth talk. Who would be eager to hear such things? Who might benefit from hearing about John the Baptist and others who suffer and die from, for their faith? Who might hear that and want to hear it? Well, maybe those Christians who are already suffering and dying for their faith. They might identify with and find comfort in what happened to John. We might scratch our heads over this kind of news, but they might find it of great use and great comfort. Early Christian tradition says 
that Mark wrote his gospel to Christians in Rome who were being thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum and who were being burned to death at night to illuminate the Emperor Nero's garden. Mark's gospel is a message of comfort for those Christians under duress. It is a message of consolation for those caught in the conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness. When suffering Christians in Rome read this gospel, they must have thought, if this is what happens to a good man like John, why should I be ashamed if it happens to me? If God himself endures suffering and death in the person of Jesus, then should not I feel honored to share the same fate as he, the same experience as he? Mark writes his gospel to strengthen those who are suffering for Christ and to remind them that they are in good company, the best company of all. If this is how the world treats John and Jesus, the greatest among us, who are we to expect that we would be treated any differently? Number one, though, our default goal, what I call our default goal, and, and, and this is our, our default goal, if we don't know the Lord or maybe if we strayed from the Lord, this becomes our ambition in life. We want a life that is predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable. That is humanity's highest hope and expectation. And sadly, it is also what some Christians expect. I don't know how they come to that conclusion. Well, I do. You have to be ignorant of the word. That's how. But here's my question. If your goal in life is to be a life to live a life that's predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable, do you think you'd be willing to risk your reputation by publicly identifying with Jesus? If your goal in life is comfort and pleasure, would you risk your career by publicly confessing the truth of God's word concerning marriage or gender or sexuality in general? If your goal is comfort and pleasure, you will be, at best, a closet Christian. And I fear we have too many closet Christians, and sometimes I could see one staring at me from the mirror. Number two, God's goal, and this should be our goal, the goal of everyone here, the goal of everyone who names Christ, and that's the salvation of humanity. The salvation of humanity. My friends, the salvation of souls cannot be accomplished by Christians or by ministers who remain in the closet. That salvation comes through a message, and the message is the message of the cross. God loves the world so much that he gave his son, and he loves the world too much to leave it as it is, he loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He calls us to speak the truth in love to a world that's in need of both. This is the cross we bear. 
And the crosses we bear remind the world of the cross of our Savior, which is the only cross that saves. And let her see. Either we are of all people the most to be pitied, or we are forerunners, or we are forecasts of the world to come. The unbelieving world sees us to be pitied as people to be pitied because we refrain from gratifying the desires of the flesh. Instead, we look forward to that world that is coming, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. The world pities us because we forego the things today, the pleasures of the present, for the sake of a promise to be fulfilled in the future. But do you know what Jesus says about those who live for pleasure? He says, they have their reward. They already have all that they will ever have. Now, what you see is all they'll ever have. And even that will soon be taken. Life for them will never be better than it is now. And for them, it's all downhill from here. How sad. They are the ones we must pity. They are the ones we are here to call to repentance. But to those who are not ashamed of Christ in his words, to those who dare to speak the truth in love to a family member or to a friend who opposes it, our Lord says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Your family, your friends may cancel you. They may shun you. Expect it. But God's love for them and your love for them will prevail. For God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, including those closest to you who may seem furthest from the Lord today. So stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in God's unyielding love for the sake of those around you. And you will become for them a sign, a forerunner, a forecast of the world that is to come. And may that world come quickly for them and for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the low is 71 degrees, the high is 81,
mostly cloudy with a shower and a thunderstorm. That's the forecast for Columbus, Indiana, Sunday, July 11th. A forecast tells you what to expect, what is coming. Point number one in your sermon outline, Roman number one, John is the forecast, you could say forerunner, of Jesus. When you look at John, and when you hear John, you get an idea of the one who comes after him. He's the forecast or the forerunner of Jesus. Letter A, in preaching, both John and Jesus have the same message. Repent. Turn away from your sinful lifestyles and return to the Lord your God. Return to the divine services. Turn away from the pursuit of pleasure. As God keeps his promises to you in Christ, keep your promises to one another. As God daily forgives your sins on account of Christ, be forgiving of one another. John's preaching of repentance forecasts Christ's preaching. And John's passion, his death, forecasts the passion and death of our Savior himself. Letter B, John forecast Jesus in his passion. As John is bound and arrested, Jesus will be bound and arrested. As John is innocent, so is Jesus. As John is hated by Herodias, who finds a way to kill John at an opportune time, Jesus is hated by the chief priests who find a way to kill Jesus at an opportune time. And as John is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and who wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure, Jesus is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure. As John is buried by his followers, Jesus is as well. They may be secret followers, but they're followers. John's suffering and death forecasts that of the Christ. And so, not only is John the forerunner of Jesus, Roman numeral two, John is the forecast, he is the forerunner of all who follow Jesus. And here we have in our gospel reading for today another sandwich. We've talked about this before. Mark's gospel is full of what we call sandwiches. He begins with one account 
He interrupts that with another account. He finishes that other account. Then he comes back to the original story or the original account and wraps it up as well. Now, the opening verses of our gospel reading really belong to last week's gospel, the way the lectionary committee divided things up. But I think they did that because, you know, last week's, the real gospel lesson was about Christ's rejection in his hometown. That, I think they felt that wasn't long enough, so they had to throw in the sending of the 12 apostles with it. Otherwise, today's gospel reading would be too long for you to hear. I don't believe that at all, but I think that's what the lectionary committee had in mind, and so they busted up the sandwich. Well, we're putting the sandwich back together today the way it belongs, the way Mark intended. And so Mark sandwiches the brutal martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and the return of the twelve. And remember what we said before about sandwiches in Mark. The real meat, the real meaning of, of the whole kit and caboodle is in what's in the middle, okay? It's the martyrdom of John. That informs the opening verses and the closing verses, the bread, the bun of the sandwich. And Mark's purpose is to impress upon all of us the high cost of following Jesus. This is what followers of Christ can expect. So, number one, mission involves martyrdom. It does. Number two, discipleship involves death. Number three, but the word of the Lord cannot be silenced. It can't be silenced. So even while John is beheaded, the apostles are out doing the work that John had done, multiplied by 12. The word of the Lord cannot be silenced. You can silence the preacher, but not the word that he preaches. And so, my friends, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die at the hands of a hostile world. Now, Many reject this idea. It's not their idea of religion. Islam rejects this idea. Islam rejects the crucifixion of Christ on the assumption that God would never allow something that shameful to happen to one of his prophets. That ignores the fact that virtually all the Old Testament prophets died in similar ways. But not only does God allow Jesus to suffer and die in the most shameful way, God himself is in Jesus. God himself is suffering and dying in the person of Jesus. You see, at the cross, God takes his own medicine. The damnation with which God threatens all sinners, God takes that damnation into himself in the person of Christ. So it is not just a prophet who suffers and dies on the cross. It is God in the flesh who suffers and dies on the cross. Islam calls that shirk, the ultimate blasphemy. We call it the ultimate good news. Because he suffers and dies not for good people. Scripture is very clear, there's none of those. He dies for sinners, for all of us. 
even the very worst among us. But still we wonder how a loving God can stand by while John, his messenger, is beheaded. You know, Jesus said that among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And this is how God allows John to be treated. And if this is how John is treated, should we expect to be treated better? You know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Jesus said, if the world has hated me, and it has, it will hate you as well. Why does the world hate us? Well, because like John, we dare to speak truth to power. We speak truth about marriage being the lifelong union of one man and one woman. Truth about gender being fixed, not fluid, truth about the sanctity of human life from the womb all the way to the tomb, and truth about Jesus being the one and only way to the Father, the only gracious way, which is the only way there is to the Father. Now, saying these things publicly can get you canceled on social media. It can get you fired from your job and expelled from college campuses. There's many examples of this. Um, Mary Eberstadt wrote a book several years ago about life in Western culture, America, Europe, called It's Dangerous to Believe. Many examples of how people lose their jobs, they miss out on promotions, and so on and so forth, because they take a public stand on scriptural truth. And here, I just got this in the mail from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and this has been in the news, uh, well, Christian news anyway. Uh, the bishop-elect of Finland, uh, the cons- not the state church in Finland, but the Bible-believing uh, partner church of ours uh, faces jail time for biblical marriage views. Just, I mean, the examples are legion of this. And as bad as that is, it's nothing compared to what Christians in other parts of the world face on a daily basis. Kidnapping, sexual assault, the loss of their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Why? Only because of their faith in Jesus. That's why. My friends, the call to follow Christ is a call to lose everything this world has to offer and to die at the hands of a hostile world. St. Paul wrote these words, that all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. (laughs) That is a promise. To speak truth to a world that hates truth will bring the world's wrath down upon oneself. John the Baptist is a forecast of what would happen to Jesus and to us. Letter B. So, to whom would such a message appeal? (laughs) You know, it would seem like there'd be a pretty slim audience uh, for this kind of truth talk. 
Who would be eager to hear such things? Who might benefit from hearing about John the Baptist and others who suffer and die from, for their faith? Who might hear that and want to hear it? Well, maybe those Christians who are already suffering and dying for their faith. They might identify with and find comfort in what happened to John. We might scratch our heads over this kind of news, but they might find it of great use and great comfort. Early Christian tradition says that Mark wrote his gospel to Christians in Rome who were being thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum and who were being burned to death at night to illuminate the Emperor Nero's garden. Mark's gospel is a message of comfort for those Christians under duress. It is a message of consolation for those caught in the conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness. When suffering Christians in Rome read this gospel, they must have thought, if this is what happens to a good man like John, why should I be ashamed if it happens to me? If God himself endures suffering and death in the person of Jesus, then should not I feel honored to share the same fate as he, the same experience as he? Mark writes his gospel to strengthen those who are suffering for Christ and to remind them that they are in good company, the best company of all. If this is how the world treats John and Jesus, the greatest among us, who are we to expect that we would be treated any differently? Number one, though, our default goal what I call our default goal. And, and, and this is our, our default goal. If we don't know the Lord, or maybe if we strayed from the Lord, this becomes our ambition in life. We want a life that is predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable. That is humanity's highest hope and expectation. And sadly, it is also what some Christians expect. I don't know how they come to that conclusion. Well, I do. You have to be ignorant of the word. That's how. But here's my question. If your goal in life is to be a life, to live a life that's predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable, do you think you'd be willing to risk your reputation by publicly identifying with Jesus? If your goal in life is comfort and pleasure, would you risk your career by publicly confessing the truth of God's word concerning marriage or gender or sexuality in general? If your goal is comfort and pleasure, you will be at best a closet Christian. And I fear we have too many closet Christians. And Sometimes I could see one staring at me from the mirror. Number two, God's goal, and this should be our goal, the goal of everyone here, the goal of everyone who names Christ, and that's the salvation of humanity, the salvation of humanity. 
My friends, the salvation of souls cannot be accomplished by Christians or by ministers who remain in the closet. That salvation comes through a message, and the message is the message of the cross. God loves the world so much that he gave his son, and he loves the world too much to leave it as it is. He loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He calls us to speak the truth in love to a world that's in need of both. This is the cross we bear, and the crosses we bear remind the world of the cross of our Savior, which is the only cross that saves. And let her see. Either we are of all people the most to be pitied, or we are forerunners, or we are forecasts of the world to come. The unbelieving world sees us to be pitied as people to be pitied because we refrain from gratifying the desires of the flesh. Instead, we look forward to that world that is coming, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. The world pities us because we forego the things today, the pleasures of the present, for the sake of a promise to be fulfilled in the future. But do you know what Jesus says about those who live for pleasure? He says, they have their reward. They already have all that they will ever have. Now, what you see is all they'll ever have. And even that will soon be taken. Life for them will never be better than it is now. And for them, it's all downhill from here. How sad. They are the ones we must pity. They are the ones we are here to call to repentance. But to those who are not ashamed of Christ in his words, to those who dare to speak the truth in love to a family member or to a friend who opposes it, our Lord says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Your family, your friends may cancel you. They may shun you. Expect it. But God's love for them and your love for them will prevail. For God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, including those closest to you who may seem furthest from the Lord today. So stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in God's unyielding love for the sake of those around you. And you will become for them a sign, a forerunner, a forecast of the world that is to come. And may that world come quickly for them and for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.
Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the low is 71 degrees, the high is 81, mostly cloudy with a shower and a thunderstorm. That's the forecast for Columbus, Indiana, Sunday, July 11th. A forecast tells you what to expect, what is coming. Point number one in your sermon outline, Roman number one, John is the forecast, you could say forerunner, of Jesus. When you look at John and when you hear John, you get an idea of the one who comes after him. He's the forecast or the forerunner of Jesus. Letter A, in preaching, both John and Jesus have the same message. Repent. Turn away from your sinful lifestyles and return to the Lord your God. Return to the divine services. Turn away from the pursuit of pleasure. As God keeps his promises to you in Christ, keep your promises to one another. As God daily forgives your sins on account of Christ, be forgiving of one another. John's preaching of repentance forecasts Christ's preaching. And John's passion, his death, forecasts the passion and death of our Savior himself. Letter B, John forecast Jesus in his passion. As John is bound and arrested, Jesus will be bound and arrested. As John is innocent, so is Jesus. As John is hated by Herodias, who finds a way to kill John at an opportune time, Jesus is hated by the chief priests, who find a way to kill Jesus at an opportune time. And as John is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and who wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure, Jesus is killed by a weak-willed tyrant who fears him and wants to save him, but who vacillates and finally yields to social pressure. As John is buried by his followers, Jesus is as well. They may be secret followers, 
but their followers. John's suffering and death forecasts that of the Christ. And so, not only is John the forerunner of Jesus, Roman numeral two, John is the forecast, he is the forerunner of all who follow Jesus. And here we have in our gospel reading for today another sandwich. We've talked about this before. Mark's gospel is full of what we call sandwiches. He begins with one account. He interrupts that with another account. He finishes that other account. Then he comes back to the original story or the original account and wraps it up as well. Now, the opening verses of our gospel reading really belong to last week's gospel, the way the lectionary committee divided things up. But I think they did that because, you know, last week's, the real gospel lesson was about Christ's rejection in his hometown. That, I think they felt that wasn't long enough, so they had to throw in the sending of the 12 apostles with it. Otherwise, today's gospel reading would be too long for you to hear. I don't believe that at all, but I think that's what the lectionary committee had in mind, and so they busted up the sandwich. Well, we're putting the sandwich back together today the way it belongs, the way Mark intended. And so Mark sandwiches the brutal martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and the return of the twelve. And remember what we said before about sandwiches in Mark. The real meat, the real meaning of, of the whole kit and caboodle is in what's in the middle, okay? It's the martyrdom of John. That informs the opening verses and the closing verses, the bread, the bun of the sandwich. And Mark's purpose is to impress upon all of us the high cost of following Jesus. This is what followers of Christ can expect. So, number one, mission involves martyrdom. It does. Number two, discipleship involves death. Number three, but the word of the Lord cannot be silenced. It can't be silenced. So even while John is beheaded, the apostles are out doing the work that John had done, multiplied by 12. The word of the Lord cannot be silenced. You can silence the preacher, but not the word that he preaches. And so, my friends, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die at the hands of a hostile world. Now, Many reject this idea. It's not their idea of religion. Islam rejects this idea. Islam rejects the crucifixion of Christ on the assumption that God would never allow something that shameful to happen to one of his prophets. That ignores the fact that virtually all the Old Testament prophets died in similar ways. But not only does God allow Jesus to suffer and die in the most shameful way, God himself is in Jesus. God himself is suffering and dying in the person of Jesus. 
You see, at the cross, God takes his own medicine. The damnation with which God threatens all sinners, God takes that damnation into himself in the person of Christ. So it is not just a prophet who suffers and dies on the cross. It is God in the flesh who suffers and dies on the cross. Islam calls that shirk, the ultimate blasphemy. We call it the ultimate good news. Because he suffers and dies not for good people. Scripture is very clear, there's none of those. He dies for sinners, for all of us, even the very worst among us. But still we wonder how a loving God can stand by while John, his messenger, is beheaded. You know, Jesus said that among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And this is how God allows John to be treated. And if this is how John is treated, should we expect to be treated better? You know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Jesus said, if the world has hated me, and it has, it will hate you as well. Why does the world hate us? Well, because like John, we dare to speak truth to power. We speak truth about marriage being the lifelong union of one man and one woman. Truth about gender being fixed, not fluid. Truth about the sanctity of human life from the womb all the way to the tomb. And truth about Jesus being the one and only way to the Father, the only gracious way, which is the only way there is to the Father. Now, saying these things publicly can get you canceled on social media. It can get you fired from your job and expelled from college campuses. There's many examples of this. Um, Mary Eberstadt wrote a book several years ago about life in Western culture, America, Europe, called It's Dangerous to Believe. Many examples of how people lose their jobs, they miss out on promotions, and so on and so forth, because they take a public stand on scriptural truth. And here, I just got this in the mail from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and this has been in the news, uh, well, Christian news anyway. Uh, the bishop-elect of Finland, uh, the not the state church in Finland, but the Bible-believing uh, partner church of ours uh, faces jail time for biblical marriage views. Just, I mean, the examples are legion of this. And as bad as that is, it's nothing compared to what Christians in other parts of the world face on a daily basis. Kidnapping, sexual assault, the loss of their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Why? Only because of their faith in Jesus. That's why. My friends, the call to follow Christ is a call to lose everything this world has to offer and to die at the hands of of a hostile world. 
St. Paul wrote these words that all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> that is a promise. To speak truth to a world that hates truth will bring the world's wrath down upon oneself. John the Baptist is a forecast of what would happen to Jesus and to us. Letter B. So, to whom would such a message appeal? <laughs> you know, it would seem like there'd be a pretty slim audience uh, for this kind of truth talk. Who would be eager to hear such things? Who might benefit from hearing about John the Baptist and others who suffer and die from, for their faith? Who might hear that and want to hear it? Well, maybe those Christians who are already suffering and dying for their faith. They might identify with and find comfort in what happened to John. We might scratch our heads over this kind of news, but they might find it of great use and great comfort. Early Christian tradition says that Mark wrote his gospel to Christians in Rome who were being thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum and who were being burned to death at night to illuminate the Emperor Nero's garden. Mark's gospel is a message of comfort for those Christians under duress. It is a message of consolation for those caught in the conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness. When suffering Christians in Rome read this gospel, they must have thought, if this is what happens to a good man like John, why should I be ashamed if it happens to me? If God himself endures suffering and death in the person of Jesus, then should not I feel honored to share the same fate as he, the same experience as he? Mark writes his gospel to strengthen those who are suffering for Christ and to remind them that they are in good company, the best company of all. If this is how the world treats John and Jesus, the greatest among us, who are we to expect that we would be treated any differently? Number one, though, our default goal what I call our default goal. And, and, and this is our, our default goal. If we don't know the Lord, or maybe if we strayed from the Lord, this becomes our ambition in life. We want a life that is predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable. That is humanity's highest hope and expectation. And sadly, it is also what some Christians expect. I don't know how they come to that conclusion. Well, I do. You have to be ignorant of the word. That's how. But here's my question. If your goal in life is to be a life, to live a life that's predictable, comfortable, and pleasurable, do you think you'd be willing to risk your reputation by publicly identifying with Jesus? If your goal in life is comfort and pleasure, would you risk your career by publicly confessing the truth of God's word? 
concerning marriage or gender or sexuality in general. If your goal is comfort and pleasure, you will be at best a closet Christian. And I fear we have too many closet Christians. And sometimes I could see one staring at me from the mirror. Number two, God's goal, and this should be our goal, the goal of everyone here, the goal of everyone who names Christ, and that's the salvation of humanity. The salvation of humanity. My friends, the salvation of souls cannot be accomplished by Christians or by ministers who remain in the closet. That salvation comes through a message, and the message is the message of the cross. God loves the world so much that he gave his son, and he loves the world too much to leave it as it is. He loves us too much to leave us in our sins. He calls us to speak the truth in love to a world that's in need of both. This is the cross we bear, and the crosses we bear remind the world of the cross of our Savior, which is the only cross that saves. And let her see. Either we are of all people the most to be pitied, or we are forerunners, or we are forecasts of the world to come. The unbelieving world sees us to be pitied as people to be pitied because we refrain from gratifying the desires of the flesh. Instead, we look forward to that world that is coming, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. The world pities us because we forego the things today, the pleasures of the present, for the sake of a promise to be fulfilled in the future. But do you know what Jesus says about those who live for pleasure? He says, they have their reward. They already have all that they will ever have. Now, what you see is all they'll ever have. And even that will soon be taken. Life for them will never be better than it is now. And for them, it's all downhill from here. How sad. They are the ones we must pity. They are the ones we are here to call to repentance. But to those who are not ashamed of Christ in his words... To those who dare to speak the truth in love to a family member or to a friend who opposes it, our Lord says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Your family, your friends may cancel you. They may shun you. Expect it. But God's love for them and your love for them will prevail. For God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, including those closest to you who may seem furthest from the Lord today. 
So stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in God's unyielding love for the sake of those around you. And you will become for them a sign, a forerunner, a forecast of the world that is to come. And may that world come quickly for them and for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.